If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. The Institute of Art and Ideas, articles, videos, and podcasts. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast which brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. So language is widely seen as the critical tool which has set our species apart. Yet from Wittgenstein to Derrida, no satisfactory theory has been able to support this intuition. This week on Philosophy for Our Times, our speakers get lost in language and go in search of reality. Might the problem be not with our theory of language, but with the very idea of reality? How then does language relate to the world? And where do we go from here? Should philosophy look to move away from language in its search for understanding reality? Taking on these questions, we have world-renowned philosopher and author of Naming and Necessity, Sol Kripke, Minerva Fellow at the Munich Centre for Mathematical Philosophy, Sylvia Jonas, post-postmodern philosopher and author of Closure, Hilary Lawson, and Professor of Philosophy at New York University, an expert in realism, relativism and constructivism, Paul Bogosian. Do head over to our website for the latest updates from Philosophy for Our Times and be sure to check out all of our episodes for more debates, talks and interviews to listen, download and subscribe to on your favourite podcast platform. Thank you so much for listening. Back now to Danielle Sands, who hosts this week's episode. So Hilary, perhaps you could start things off. What links reality and language? At the, close to the outset of uh, the analytic project, uh, Wittgenstein tried to provide a realist account of the relationship between language and the world, and he decided that it was impossible to do so on the grounds of self-reference. How did language account for itself? It's not entirely surprising, therefore, that almost 100 years later, the eminent uh, American philosopher Hilary Putnam uh, described the project, described the relationship between language and the world as, and I quote, a shambles. I agree with Wittgenstein uh, and Putnam that we're not going to be able to describe this relationship if it means describing uh, the link between language and something out there in the world. And the question is, why? We all have the impression that language describes stuff out there, either as a whole or individually, that words name individual things. But I don't think there is any reason to suppose that the way that language divides up the world in terms of uh, objects and properties or things and properties is how the world is divided up, or indeed that the world is divided into particulars at all. Uh, indeed, I'm 
and to argue that there's nothing in sense in common between language and the world. And that to imagine that there is, uh, is a sort of category mistake, somehow assuming that there's a similarity here when there, when there isn't. Now, what is going on, I think, is language is holding the world as something, the unspecified other out there. The, what I call openness is being held by language as something. Um, and by holding it as something, we are able to intervene. It provides us with a tool to intervene. Now, you might think that this just doesn't sound credible. I mean, we apparently operate in a stable reality. We are able to describe things very accurately. And we largely appear to agree on what that is. So how could that possibly be if language is this supposedly sort of free-spinning thing where we close the openness out there as we should feel like it? And I think that's a very beguiling thought and has driven a lot of thoughts about the way that language has to like point things out there, but I think it's mistaken. Language can close the openness of the world and enable us into a being without it being somehow verified by what's actually there. And to give you just a hint of how that is possible, if you think of the night sky and you look up at the night sky, there are an indefinite number of patterns you can make out of the stars. I mean, even in one small bit of the night sky, you can make more patterns than there are particles in the scientific universe. That's 10 to the 70. So you, you, you know, there's an in, indefinite number of patterns out there, and they're all different. And you can hold them in an in, in indefinite number of ways. But it doesn't mean to say that if you do hold them in one of those ways, that it's not valuable. If you spot, a, say, a triangle, or you hold those set of stars as a circle, or as a Ryan or a bear, you can then say, oh, look at the star that's just to the left of it or just to the right of it. You can track it across the night sky. If you pattern the whole of the night sky, you can use it to navigate around the world. But nobody thinks that the stuff out there is Orion or the bear, or, and there's an indefinite number of other ways that they could be categorized. So language, uh, we, we hold the stability of language by sharing our closures and at, not because somehow they're verified by reality. So just in final summary, I would say, I think we should think of language as a metaphor for the world, not as a descriptor of the world, and that it doesn't hook onto the world, and that's why if you try and provide an account of how language hooks onto the world, it's not going to work. Thank you. Okay, so language is a metaphor, not a descriptor of the world. Correct. Paul, uh, what links reality and language? So. Um, First of all, the, thing, the first thing to say is language is part of reality. Reality as a whole includes lots of things, people, tables, chairs, and language. <laughs> and it's that bit of reality that, on the face of it, prima facie anyway, until we're corrected by some very sophisticated theory, is that bit of reality that can be used to talk about other bits of reality. Right? We use language in order to talk about things outside of this room, the stars, the constellations, and so on and so forth. And thirdly, of course, as far as the relation between language and reality goes, uh, language can change reality direct, directly because it itself is part of reality. So when we use language, bits of reality change, as it were, molecules move around, but also indirectly by giving uh, orders and, uh, and prescriptions to people to do things which then brings about change. So that's all some very basic things that you could say about the relation between language and reality. But what Hillary was talking about is what we might call the question of 
realism versus idealism when it comes to the relation between language and reality. So one very commonsensical view is that a lot of reality existed before there were any human beings around. In fact, as far as the latest science goes, you know, we've come onto the scene very, very late. The universe has been around maybe for 13.8 billion years and life for uh, four and so on and so forth, okay? So prima facie, now if you ask yourself, what does that imply just on the face of it? It seems to suggest that there were facts about the universe, truths about the universe that antedated the arrival of human beings. And human beings brought language with them. So there is a prima facie puzzle about how it is that language could have made it the case that there were facts, that things are carved up into individual objects and that those individual objects have the properties that they have when, after all, there were presumably facts about this well before any language arrived on the scene. For just to give an example, we, we believe, and the fossil record shows, there were dinosaurs 65 million years ago before there were any human beings around to describe them. Now, so the, 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 this is a puzzle about the kind of linguistic idealism that I think Hillary is uh, very fond of, which says, no, the facts don't pre-exist. Language constructs these facts. It carves up reality into discrete objects. For instance, one of them is Hillary Lawson. So I have the name Hillary Lawson to refer to that thing over there and say, I am going to have a panel debate with him. Um, so, but that apparently only works because our language carves things up into the entities that we recognize. Just like the, the case of the constellation is very interesting because Hillary is absolutely right that a constellation is a pattern that is seen in the sky. So that is what philosophers call a response-dependent thing. That is, you know, depending on your position, different patterns will be salient to you, and you will therefore come up with a name for them. They are not real, as it were, clusters that act as a unit. Orion is just a pattern that's made up of many different stars from many different uh, galaxies, as may be the case or bits of the solar system. But you see, that example is very, very misleading because even if constellations are somehow picked out by us and given a name, presumably there's some underlying stuff that antedated that pattern that we're seeing and which we did not have a hand in creating, let alone by creating through language. So uh, I am definitely on the opposite side just in case that wasn't clear already. <laughs> um, over to you, uh, Sylvia. What links reality and language? Yeah, thank you. So I think it's very important to start with a very obvious fact about language, and that is that language has been incredibly successful in helping us not only to express our thoughts and emotions, but also in agglomerating knowledge, which is basically the, the foundation of all empirical science. And in that respect, language has been an incredibly successful project, and that is undeniable, and that is also not uh, sort of contingent on how we understand the underlying reality. However, I think the focus on language within philosophy, and specifically within the analytic tradition, has also somewhat narrowed our perception of what reality actually is. 
it is for many in philosophy a standard assumption that meaningful language is language that refers to objects or properties that can be empirically verified. And that, of course, very much restricts our perception of reality. So one distinction that is pervasive across a number of different fields of contemporary philosophy is the distinction between meaningful and nonsensical uh, linguistic expressions. So sentences were divided up into the class that actually has meaning, that actually expresses something, that actually points to a fact of reality, and uh, nonsensical sentences that perhaps look like they're communicating something about reality, but really, if we look very closely, if we apply the means of logical analysis, we'll come to find that they don't say anything at all. I'm teaching a course at the moment about the divide between the continental and the analytic tradition, and I've been discussing um, two texts with my students, one by Carnap and one by Heidegger, actually the other way around, because Carnap responds to Heidegger. And I'm going to give you an example from that Heidegger text. So um, Heidegger famously states that the nothing noths. And, and that statement has been very much ridiculed, not only by Carnap, but by a number of um, philosophers from the analytic tradition as being completely nonsensical. And I find that a little bit unfair because uh, in the context of Heidegger's text, it's very clear what that is supposed to mean. He's trying to describe a state of mind where uh, human beings are sort of get acquainted with a sort of very deep existential anxiety. And he tries to argue that this is when the nothing sort of comes close to us. And you may think about this theory whatever you want. But one thing I don't think is correct to say about it is that all these sentences that Heidegger uttered were nonsensical. So I think that we have to be very careful with the way we frame language. And I think even more than that, the people who get to say what constitutes meaningful language and what doesn't also hold a lot of power over what we are supposed to um, perceive when we see reality. So we should really keep that in the back of our minds. Thank you. And so, what links reality and language? Well, actually, I wanted to start out by responding to the last thing. I mean, uh, that is, I actually, look, I mean, the concern of dividing the meaningful and the meaningless, that was mostly a project of the logical positivists, uh, like Carnap in the old days, and not so much held uh, as a concern of analytic philosophers or anyone else today. However, the particular thing from Heidegger, actually, I, I actually wanted to look up the passage because I wondered if Carnap was quoting it out of context. And he wasn't. It is um, the subject of these lectures is being itself, being itself and nothing else, right? Okay. What then is this nothing else? Nothing, right? See, and I mean, I even once talked to an admirer of Heidegger who actually even went to visit him in Germany, and he said, well, I don't know why he thought he could get away with that one, right? Um, uh, because it's a little bit of a funny thing, like uh, the view that 
we're gonna, the, the sole subject of these lectures is being itself, being itself and nothing else. What then is this nothing, right? Now, that is a bit of a nonsensical dodge, even if there is some sort of interesting concept of nothingness, you should just start out with this and not make a pun. I feel like we might get sidetracked down no, the Heidegger conversation. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I actually just <laughs> reacted to that. Look, I am in agreement with Paul that there was a world and there were lots of facts about it before anyone ever came along and it is not created by language in that way. Now, um, constellations that we see are a particularly strange and special case because, well, of course, we carve out particular patterns, but maybe some of the patterns do exist, so to speak, even before any humans came along, but there is a special problem about the stars because we see some stars that have already burned out and we, they're not really there. So the pattern is not really there, at least now as we see it. Now, I don't think Hillary was really denying much of this. He actually talked as a fact as how many atoms there are in the universe. I don't really know if there are more patterns than that myself. That seems to me like an exaggeration. But it is true that some of these patterns, well, they're not there because even some of the stars in them are not there, right? So, um, uh, but that is a very special case I mean, this audience here, the tables and chairs and so on, right? They are all here, I think. <laughs> and, um, and even talking about figures in the past and natural kinds, well, that's what my book, Naming and Necessity, is about, how we can talk about these things. Some philosophers have denied that, but I think what Paul says is absolutely right. Before any human beings ever came along, there were facts about, you know, the world, right? And whether there were dinosaurs, right? And some other things that we don't have anymore, right? And human beings never imposed this upon the world. Though I don't know whether Hillary really means to deny that. Well, so I'd obviously like to come back on this. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right, go ahead. Is that okay? <laughs> sure. Yeah. So. I obviously don't think that the constellation example is uh, in any way special. I think that that is indeed how we pattern everything. And this underlying thought that both Saul and Paul have put forward, that, uh, which appeals to the, the uh, as I say, a beguiling notion that, well, of course there were facts before there were humans and there were dinosaurs and the story of the universe and all of that sort of thing, and we didn't all just imagine it, and it's easy to portray the account that I've given as sort of idealistic nonsense. So uh, I think there is a story that we have about the world, which is our scientific story, largely. That's the dominant metaphysics of our lives, and uh, of contemporary life. And that does begin with Big Bang, and we have a a history of the universe and things that happened along the way and dinosaurs and so forth. 
we have built that story by creating closures over many years of uh, our culture and exploring those closures. And we have developed an account which enables us to understand the world. Now, I'm not saying that there's no world out there, that we just imagine it in our heads. I described it as an unspecified other. So yes, there's stuff out there, and there was stuff out there before humans came around. Okay, sure. so we're, but we're what all there agreeing. Isn't, what there isn't is we're a all particular agreeing on differentiated there being stuff bits out there. out there. And differentiated bits out there. There aren't particulars out there. Those particulars and holding it in that way is what we have done. And of course that applies to what we do now and what we say about the, the distant past. So is it fair to say that we'll all agree that there is stuff out there? One. Yes. But the people on my left are saying there is stuff out there and we can describe that stuff using language in a more or less accurate way? Yeah. And on my right, you're saying that we, it's too simplistic to say that. We can, we can describe it in a very uh, way that's very helpful and, and can be very precise. But it's not a description of what is there. It's not like, you know, as I say, I think it's a category mistake to think that our particulars are somehow verified by what's out there. What's out there, we can't get at. It's a sort of unspecified other. We close it. Our, our senses, our causal responses to what's out there. When the neuron fires in the eye, it's not a description of the world. It's a causal response to the world. And we build from those causal responses an account of how what it is. But it's not what it is. It's our response to what it is, and our response enables us to intervene, and we share those accounts, which gives us a stable frame and a stable reality, but there's an indefinite number of other ones, as in our contemporary world becomes very apparent. There are an indefinite number of other incompatible perspectives, which might also work and enable them to intervene. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to IAI.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month, and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. Let, let, me, let me say something that will be as concessive as, as I can make it, um, which is that there is, there is no doubt that there can be certain things that we experience that aren't necessarily inherent or intrinsic properties of things out there. Okay, so for example, some people think that they thought that since the 17th century about colors. Now this is a slightly controversial case, okay? And we don't want to get into the details of this. But you might very well think that the property of being colored, which looks like it's a kind of inherently qualitative uh, pigment that is spread across the surfaces of objects, is really just a kind of response of our sensorium and doesn't really correspond to a property that's out there. If you like, you know, when nobody is looking, the world is, as it were, grayscale. Um, that's a possibility. Now, what Hillary wants to do, nobody denies that, by the way. You could think that about smells, you can think it about lots of other things. 
Well, I do deny that. What I'm allowing is very, very common view. In, in there, are, there, are dif there are different ways of thinking about that particular. So as I said, I'm trying to be as concessive as I can. <laughs> okay, well, then. Let, let, the, let the point that be this. That is widely conceded, Let the point be this that it is possible for this to happen with respect to a certain range of properties that we attribute to the world. Okay. The question is, and this is the big philosophical blockbuster that, that, that Hillary wants us to swallow, uh, to mix metaphors, um, <laughs> is that this is true of absolutely everything. And the only, uh, the only thing he wants to concede being out there is the stuff, undifferentiated stuff. Now this was really, this is Kant's view. This is transcendental idealism. It's a very you know, it's a, it, it derives from a very great thinker, Immanuel Kant, but it is a very strange view. And the problem with it is as follows. So, you see, the picture here is that there is this thing which we might call the noumenal dough. It's this undifferentiated dough. And language is like a cookie cutter. And it goes in and carves out little bits of this dough and gives them names. You see, that's the picture. Now, the problem with this is that the dough has to exist independently of the cookie cutter. It has to have properties independently of the cookie cutter because you can't just cut this dough in any which way you want. The dough will have properties that will constrain how the cookie cutter operates on it. And furthermore, it is responsible for whatever retinal stimulations you are getting. So it is loaded with features that you did not account for that are themselves causing you to have whatever experiences you're having. So any thesis that you build on this picture has to be very limited. It has to already concede the thing that you think we can't make sense of, which is there are facts, they're out there, they're independent of us, and they constrain the way we experience the world. I think we've seamlessly managed to cover the first theme there, which was how does language relate to our, our world? Um, Sylvia, perhaps you could uh, change direction slightly and we can talk about our second theme, which is why has language proved so successful? Well, I mentioned in the beginning that I think the success of language was, first of all, that it allowed us to agglomerate knowledge, um, to share all the knowledge that each individual person um, gleaned from the world uh, with other people. And it has also opened up other minds for us. So through the expression of our emotions um, and exchange about these emotions with other subjects, we're able to sort of get a glimpse at other people's minds. And I think that's, um, yeah, one of the big achievements of language. And that's why it is absolutely in indispensable for us. What I would like to add again, and I think this is perhaps I'm somewhere in between what Hillary was saying, what Paul was saying, is that I think that language might very well be picking out stuff that is out there and um, might be cutting out cookie shapes uh, from dough that has substantial properties and it's not, the properties don't only come into the picture in our heads. What I wanted to stress is that language has also enabled us to sort of transcend, this is a word that is often also uh, despised by a particular kind of philosopher, um, it enables us to transcend the bare empirical facts in all kinds of ways. Um, and the best sort of general way of phrasing what I mean with that is that we take all these different facts that we picked out by language and we sort of link them together and thereby give them a big picture meaning, whatever that may be, and in whatever context we might be doing that. 
I think that is a really, really important thing. Um, and what philosophy can achieve sometimes, and I think that's what attracts people initially to philosophy, is that it can change the way we sort of, it can change the way we link together uh, these different facts. We sort of get a completely different big picture of what's going on in the world. And I take um, sort of, I object to philosophies that try to say that that is not an interesting project or something philosophers shouldn't be engaged in. Can I pick up, I'd like to pick up on Paul's Doe uh, metaphor, because it does seem to me this cuts through to the sort of really, we need to talk about the big stuff here. Um, I agree there's parallels with Kant, certainly. Uh, I wouldn't, uh, uh, I, instead of saying it's Doe, I call it openness. Okay, I couldn't call it something else. I, I also said unspecified other, you know, it doesn't matter. But this idea that there must be some properties out there which are causing the uh, effect in the eye, the word properties is a word of our language. So it's already trying to define the sort of words, it's trying to get at what is the character of the dough. And I think uh, one of the things that has, has bedeviled, as it were, this sort of philosophy has been an attempt to always try and describe the dough. Say, so, well, we must be, there must be some bits in it. There must be something there that's affected. Well, no, we, we can't. The word bits is a bit in our language. It's a way that we close the world. It's part of our, our frame of how we're understanding bits and particles and shapes and all of these. These are all words. And what we're trying to say is trying to describe something that is other. And we can't do that. We, we just can't do that. And we've got to give up the idea that, well, there is something in the end that is causing the retinal thing. No, we, we don't know what, it's a category mistake to think that we can describe that. What we can do is be very precise within our closures. What, the equivalent of the cookie cutter is what I would describe as a closure. We can be very precise about those closures. We can refine them. We can get them to work better. But they can't reach through. That's what Wittgenstein realized. You can't reach through and say there are facts. You know, he started off saying, you know, uh, there are only facts in the world, and he gave this up. Gave this up because he realized you can't do it. You, you can't reach outside of language and say what it's like out there. So we just have to recognize that it, it, out there is, yeah, cookie dough if you like. It, you could say it's openness. You could call it is an unspecified other, but don't imagine that we can start being able to describe it. That's not what's going on. What we're doing is closing that openness and being able to intervene on the basis of it. So, can, yes, we, can we reach through? Hilary says we can't reach through. Well, yeah, Wittgenstein was, uh, um, though I sort of tried to show uh, the force of his arguments, it was um, a highly relativistic view in the end, like, uh, you know, um, we shouldn't fight against another language game in which they rely on a witch doctor rather than a physicist or something, right? So um, that's just not, it's not even just philosophy if you take that seriously, you know? I mean, like, there's a political issue today. Is climate change an objective fact that we better do something about, or is that just what the way some people see things, right? And others might see it a different way, which is actually, though they don't say they're relativists, that would be the other point of view. And I hope we agree with the first thing and don't say that's just what some uh, sort of powerful scientists are imposing on reality. It's, um, 
a fact that we better do something about. Okay. Can I come in? So uh, I think um, in the early bits of my career, I was happily promoting the account that I'm describing now. And recently, we've seen in culture one of the risks of the sort of approach that I'm giving, you know, that you can get a situation where there are uh, both incompatible views and, and dangerous ones. So more recently, I've wanted to double down on the need to look at the world and to be to challenge the closures that we do provide in a uh, rational uh, and reasoned way. So I don't think that these, you know, the, the, the cookie cutter or the closures are, are free spinning. I think we have to, if we propose, let's hold the world like this, we've got to look and see, well, does it work? And where it doesn't work, you've got to give up the closure. So what it's does, not, what does working like, mean in this context? Well, it means that you apply the, your closure uh, in the context of all of the other ones you've got, and you see how it operates in practice. And if, for example, you say, you know, those three stars are a triangle, and one of them moves, you think, oh, actually, no, it's not a triangle. So it, you, you, uh, uh, and so you look within the context of your closures, and you refine them. You know, physicists do this with their contemporary theoretical models. You refine them, and you can refine them ever more precisely. And at the moment, I think it's absolutely true that we are at risk of somehow holding on to this notion of sort of, be, of, of the real and truth, while at the same time losing sight of the important bits, which are the observation, the, the looking, the empiricism, and the rationalism, which we really need. We need that with our closures, but we just have to give up on this theological notion, I think, of, the, of there being uh, a, you know, a world Perfect that's divided into, into particulars out there. We're just coming along and identifying them as if, yeah, you've got it right. That's, I don't think it's like, we're never going to find the correct combination. 10,000 years of human civilization, we've had a whole load of them. There's going to be another, another 10,000 years, we're going to have a, a, another one. No one really seriously thinks we're going to get to the end. Oh yes, we've ticked it off, it's done. I mean, it, that's not how it is. We, we create these closures, and they, each one of them enables us to do different things in the world. The way we hold the world changes how we can intervene. Yeah, I just had a, a question about this because I was wondering, maybe this is um, where I'm taking Paul's side for a second. I was just wondering what determines how well uh, a system of closure works or what determines that one system of closure works better than another? I mean, this also relates to your question yeah. of what, what, what constitutes working well. Yeah. I mean, it, is it something like matching up to the facts, but then it looks yeah. very much like we're yeah. back to the, the dough and the cookies. Yes, I agree. Or so, is it something more internal, in which case so, you might, I so, mean, that might so I, save I can't, your... I can't, I can't tell you that. We can't, I think this is what Wittgenstein covered in the Tractatus. You can't, you can't say why the closure works. That would be to reach through and say, you know, oh, actually it works because that thing's over there and that's why it's right. No, you can't do that. It's just that you use it and it proves to be useful. So it, you, you have a framework, you think, yeah, yeah, that, that makes sense. If I point to uh, something and I, I say, this is firewood, you think, oh, I see. I thought of it as a table. <laughs> but you can then do something with it. You think, oh, I know what I, know what I do with it now. 
Um, or maybe I think, actually, this is, a, this is an art object. The way that we describe it changes what we do with it. And of course, we can then argue about, well, is it an art object? I mean, maybe it's not really, and it's not in a gallery, and maybe it's, but then somebody else, well, actually, it is an art object. We argue about it. We argue about those closures. It's not an art object, or a table, or a collection of molecules, or quarks, or anything. It's each of those are different ways of holding this stuff. And each one of those different ways of holding this stuff enables us to do different things, and it's an exciting potential. It means that all of the ways that we hold the world enable us to do different things, and we need to be really detailed and rational and reasoned about them. It's no good just saying, oh, well, we can hold it as a rhinoceros. I've got to give a reason, well, why? Show me how it's a rhinoceros. Thank you. Paul. Yes, um, so you said it's not a table, and it's not firewood, and it's not an art object, and it's not... Uh sitting up here on the platform, and I want to say it's all of those Well, things. it is all of those things, yes. <laughs> uh, I, I, it's not, it's, so the opposite of it's not any of those things, it's all of those things. Yeah. And this is, the, this is a very important point, because you see, no issue about objectivity or truth is joined when you have compatible descriptions of the same thing. In fact, this, this thing, and every other thing in the universe, has an infinite number of properties. Uh, a lot of intrinsic properties that is just looking at it by itself. And then, of course, all of its relational properties to everything else in the universe. And every one of those is a fact. Every one of yeah. those is real. They all exist together. The only issue is joined is if you tell me a, 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 a different description of this thing, which is incompatible with one of them. That's, so if you tell me this is a banana, no, there's a possible closure for you. Now that's going to set up, and you say it's a banana and a table at the same time. This very thing, you know, quite possibly there could be a banana that's a table, but this thing is not a banana. Okay. Now what is it that makes it not a banana? There are facts about it that make it not a banana. Given what banana means, what table means, this is a table and not a banana. So and maybe you'd like to step in at this point. Yes. Why is this a table and not a banana? Or is it indeed a table and not a banana? Well. Can it be a banana as well? No, it's obvious that it is not a banana. <laughs> and according to me, anyway, could not have been a banana, right? Um, now, whether it's an art object might be a matter of judgment and indeed even change over time. What people think are art objects now might not have been considered proper art sometimes in the past, right, and so on. So, uh, so that example uh, of it is certainly relative and maybe someone might think, oh, this is an art object. I think most people nowadays would not think but, that it is. Suppose I say, you think this is a table? Actually, it's a chair. A table, it could be a table could be used as a chair, but why, and even as an why example that Chomsky gives a hard bed. Why is, it, why is it not a chair that's being used as a table? Well, <laughs> it, it would be more conventional in our culture Indeed, to use it would this. be more conventional. There I think we would share it. There is a con I would say there's a conventional closure. The conventional closures we hold as a table, but actually our conventional closures have a risk of becoming dominant they get congealed, and we just think, it's only a table. 
But it's not only a table, it's a chair, it's firewood, it's all of these, it's an indefinite number of things. I think I agree with Paul. It's an indefinite number of things. And we can't privilege any one of them. And there's not some underlying stuff that we can get to, reach through all of these different things. But right now we are privileging one of them. The we're stuff. using it as a table. Well, Is that not privileging its, its tableness, its table usage? Well, temporarily, for, for a um, <laughs> in a certain context, in a certain situation. Right. But it might be something else in another situation. And what we're doing is we're choosing the closure that is most useful. In this, in this situation, if I pass you a glass, yes, let's call it a table. We understand that. If, on the other hand, I'm going to sit on it, we want to refer to it as a bench or a, a, a chair. If we want to talk about it as an art thing, we're going to talk about it as a sculpture. It's all you of those things. Trump's it's not one of them. Yeah. Uh, you know, the case of the, the, the ta tables are artifacts, which, which make them a special case in a sense, yes. Because, yes. Uh, they artifacts are things which are produced with certain intentions right. by human beings to serve certain functions, and so typically, you know, the function is reflected in the in the actual configuration of the thing, and some of them can have more than one function because. Well, imagine it was a log and no, it no, hadn't been an artifact. It was just a we was we found ourselves in yeah. in a wood, and it was the same thing would apply. Well, again, we could know, we could a, we could treat it as a log. We could treat it as part of a tree. We could say yes. it's an environmental uh, object. We could say it's all of the there's an indefinite well, number of things that we can describe. Anything. It's no, not just you see, you're human artifacts. You're using compatible descriptions. These are all compatible descriptions. Yeah. The real the real issue is joined. I mean, relativism is really joined in an interesting way. When you have two descriptions of something that are incompatible, they are inconsistent with one another, but they're said to be equally valid. That's, that's what you want, but you can't do it just by, by getting compatible. I mean, do you I'm, want I'm, that? I'm not saying they're equally valid. <laughs> closures, closures aren't in any sense equally, equally valid. No, no. That's, it seems to me the real challenge in life is to choose and judge which closure to adopt. So whether we adopt it as, uh, in, the in the example here, whether we think it is an art object or a table, is a judgment which one, which closure we're going to go. If we think in a political context that somebody is a freedom fighter or a terrorist, those are incompatible. What matters is which we judge. You can do either. You can think that the person who blows up the Twin Towers is a terrorist, and we can all think, yes, we know they are. That's what they are. That's the fact. Well, not so easy. Because somebody will say, no, that's not the case. They are a freedom fighter. They are fighting for some ultimate other truth. So the way that we hold the world changes what we do with it. And we've got to focus on the importance of those closures and test each of them in the sense of think, is that a reasonable way to, to, to operate with them? Or should we abandon one in favor of an alternative? Rather than think, there's a true one out there. Sadly, we are out of time. Sorry to all of those who didn't get a chance to answer your questions. Thank you all for coming. Do join me. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Philosophy for Our Times. The podcast was brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. It was hosted by me, Anna Carey, and our guests this week were Saul Kripke, Sylvia Jonas, Hilary Lawson, and Paul Bogosian. If you'd like to hear more on this topic, then why not listen to episode 56, Language and the World. Please do subscribe to the podcast to make sure you never miss an episode. And now you've listened to it, why not head over to iTunes and give us a rating and a review? Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to tune in next week for more debates and talks from the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas.